Hey guys, it's Raina and Marie. Welcome back to Those Murder Girls Podcast. We made it, you guys. It's Friday. It's Friday, yay! <laughs> so before we get into today's case, we just wanted to say thank you so much for the reviews over the past couple weeks. We appreciate you guys so much, and we kind of feel like we don't tell you enough. I know, you guys have no idea how much that really helps us. Along with all of your downloads, uh, these two things are really the best forms of support that you can show Raina and I. I know. So I'm pretty sure that that intro is long <laughs> enough. I'm down with the 34-second intros. So, All right. Well, now, into today's case. This case was requested by a listener of ours. His name is Philip, and he's from Escondido, California. What up, Philip? He actually Phillip? happens to be, like, world's best boss, by the way. Oh. I know firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Philip. Thank you. This case hits close to home for Phil. The subject in our story was a couple years older than him, and they grew up in the same hometown. When she went missing, Phil remembers seeing her missing posters plastered all around his school and all around the town. That totally reminds me of when I was younger growing up in Northern California, seeing Polly Class's posters like all over the place. Isn't it crazy the memories that you have about these things? And it happens to be like these grotesque things that just stick with us. Yeah. And now we forever about them. <laughs> forever in our minds. I know. <laughs> All right, guys, let's begin. For over 30 years, Maddie and Mike Mishaloff have slept with their front porch light on, waiting for the return of their beloved daughter, Eileen. For over 30 years, the spot at their dinner table has remained open for Eileen, and her room has gone untouched. For over 30 years, Eileen's parents have had faith that one day Eileen will return. And they want her to know that when she does, they will be waiting for her within the same home in a quiet cul-de-sac in Dublin, California. Eileen left home on the morning of January 30th, 1989 to head to school, and she planned to leave a little bit early that day to be picked up for ice skating practice at her home. But after leaving campus, she would never be seen again. At this time, Eileen was one of many missing girls in the Bay Area. Eileen Beth Mishloff was born March 12, 1975, in Lincoln, Nebraska. At the time of her disappearance, she was living with her family in Dublin, California, which is about 35 miles southeast of San Francisco. Eileen was an eighth grader at Wells Intermediate School, which is now Wells Middle School. Eileen was an award-winning ice skater. She was a star student, and she was the only sister to her brothers Robert and Brian, who was actually her twin. Eileen looked like a typical 80s teen. She had her pierced ears. She had big, beautiful brown eyes, freckles, braces, this thick, wavy, dark hair for days. She was so cute. I mean, you guys, go check out her photos on Instagram and Facebook at Those Murder Girls Podcast. Eileen had a love for ice skating. She had been skating since nearly the age of four. Eileen had won numerous awards and trophies for her skating, and it had actually taken place of the PE period at school. So instead of having to participate in PE on campus, Eileen was able to count her ice skating for credit. She skated a lot, to say the least. So Maddie, Eileen's mother, said that Eileen would skate around 20 to 30 hours a week, which that's That's a a lot. So ice skating was Eileen's life. I mean, she was so talented. She had this great opportunity to skate against the best of the best, including... Christy Yamaguchi. Which I thought was so awesome. That's insane. Can you imagine just being like this young girl just killing it on the ice? Such an accomplishment. I know. That's so awesome. 
On the afternoon of January 30th, 1989, Eileen left school a little bit early at about 2 o'clock to make her walk home, which wasn't too long, maybe like a mile and a half. From home, she'd be getting a ride to the ice skating rink for her usual practice that afternoon at about 4. Eileen was seen by several classmates on her walk home that afternoon. Everyone that saw Eileen walking home said that they saw her walking alone and she appeared to be fine. No one had witnessed Eileen with anyone or talking to anyone along her walk. Along her walk home, it is believed that Eileen had taken two shortcuts that day, one of them being behind a shopping center and the other one through John Mape Memorial Park. After taking these two shortcuts, Eileen was never seen again. Eileen never arrived at home that afternoon, but it wouldn't be until hours later that anyone realized that she had been missing. Eileen's skate coach had stopped by her house to give her a ride to the rink just before 4 p.m. that afternoon. But he was met by Eileen's brother, who said that she didn't come home after school. And coach was like, okay, like maybe she's already at the rink. The coach said goodbye to the brother, and he took off. So nothing really to be alarmed at, like, at this time. But when they fast forward to 6 p.m., two hours later, Maddie, Eileen's mom, she arrived at the ice rink to pick her up, as she normally does, only to find out that Eileen never made it. Right away, Maddie calls 911 to report Eileen missing, and a search within the community ensues. Searchers form an official search group called the Eileen Mishloff Recovery Group. They distributed thousands of flyers all around town in an effort to locate Eileen, hoping that someone would recognize her and that they had any information on her whereabouts. Now, Eileen's face was also featured on milk cartons that were widely distributed. The flyers distributed showed a beautiful photo of Eileen on them with a description of what Eileen was last seen wearing, which was actually a charcoal pullover, a pink and gray striped shirt, black low top heads, and a dark blue backpack. A $50,000 reward was announced early on in Eileen's case, and bright yellow ribbons were placed all around the city that blew in the wind. It was a symbol of hope for Eileen's safe return. Law enforcement wasn't quick to classify this case as an abduction, more than likely because of her age and the fact that teenagers are usually declared runaways before anything else when the cops don't have anything to go on. That was until Eileen's keychain and backpack were found inside of John Mape Park, lying alone in a dried-up creek bed. These two items were positively identified to belong to Eileen. After this shocking find, it was determined that the area that those items were found in were thoroughly searched prior to the discovery. So now the case shifts into an abduction case. Eileen wasn't the only missing kid in the area at the time, but the investigators didn't really think that her disappearance was related to the other two girls that were missing in the area. But what they did know, that somebody was obviously responsible. They knew from talking to the family that she would have never gone missing willingly. So the police had a few people that were on their radar because of the other missing girls in the area. So naturally they went to them to question them about Eileen's case as well. The first person of interest was Tom Lynn Sells. He was a known drifter and a convicted killer. Tommy was a transient who train hopped all around the country, leaving many women murdered in his wake, 22 to be exact around this time, to which he openly confessed to. But police believe that that number is actually a lot higher. From 1978 to 1999, Sells raped and murdered his victims. One of them was just 28 miles northwest of Dublin, where Eileen was missing from, in the city of Berkeley. 
In January 1989, around the same time that Eileen had gone missing, Sells brutally killed a girl at a BART train station. Investigators questioned Sells, who was always very open about his killings, and he denied knowing anything about Eileen being missing. He said that he was almost positive that he had never traveled into Dublin, and when he was shown photos of Eileen, he had said that he didn't recognize her. The police had reason to believe Sells, again, because he was always so open to admitting all of the murders that he committed. Police then look into a couple in the Bay Area by the name of James DiVaggio and his girlfriend, Michelle Mitchad. Two years before Eileen went missing in 1987, they had abducted a girl named Vanessa Sampson while Vanessa was walking to work. Vanessa was raped, she was tortured, and she was ultimately strangled to death by this couple. Vanessa's body was found across state lines in Nevada. So James DiVaggio had an extensive rap sheet that line after line spelled out his crimes of violent sexual assaults. Now, DiVaggio and Mitchad were questioned in Eileen's disappearance, but they had denied having anything to do with it. So now police weren't so quick to take their focus off of these two because James and Michelle were known to kidnap young girls around Eileen's age and outdoors in broad daylight. God, that is so scary. (sighs) gives me chills so it was never made public if there was any evidence found linking them to eileen or if they were questioned because they were known criminals who happened to live about five miles from where eileen had been walking that day the day that she went missing another couple that was questioned in the case was philip and nancy garrido they infamously kidnapped jc duggard while walking to the bus stop in 1991 Now, when J.C. was rescued on August 26, 2009, 11 years after being captured, by the way, detectives jumped on the chance to locate any evidence within their Antioch, California home that could be linked to Eileen's disappearance, who by this time, she had been missing for three years. But sadly, nothing was found within their home that would tie the couple to Eileen's disappearance. Lastly, there was one actual suspect on the police's radar. Now, in 1991, a man by the name of Timothy Bidner grabbed police's attention after receiving numerous complaints from local citizens. Timothy was a 43-year-old married man at the time who police thought could possibly have something to do with multiple missing girls along the I-80 corridor in the San Francisco Bay Area. Timothy had reportedly been sending random gifts through the mail to their home addresses. He would send them cash, cards, and trinkets to parents of the female children for their birthdays. Like, how gross is that? That's creepy. Ugh, he was so creepy. He was just such an odd man. I can use some cash, though, if somebody wants to send yeah. it. The P.O. box is listed on our <laughs> Facebook page. Send it our way. So one of the letters that he had sent to be read through a mirror because it was like written backwards, well, another, it had contained a Bible verse with the words, I have chosen you, dot, 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 be with me where I am, underlined. So police questioned Timothy about these unsolicited letters to which he replied that he only sent them because he thought the girls were lonely. He didn't even know them. So during the police's look into Timothy, they had realized that he had been fired from a previous job. So this is how he got all the information to send all those girls those gifts. Because in 1985, he was working for the Social Security Department and he was in charge of handling all the claims. Therefore, he had access to all these people's vital information. So Timothy is questioned about these so-called gifts, and his response was that he was just trying to add a touch of magic to the kids' lives. 
Oh my god. <laughs> the look on your face Jeez. is exactly what I'm oh, feeling inside. Timothy, you're creeping me out. Well, okay, hold on because it gets creepier. It gets even worse. Yeah. <laughs> so Timothy drove a Dodge van. So I'm picturing this super creepy van, like the kind with no windows or hubcaps. <laughs> so anyways, as if a windowless van couldn't be creepy enough, he had the inside of the van like wallpapered with photos of young children drawings from young children and bible verses oh my gosh yeah and this van was one that he was arrested in for trying to lure little girls to it so to add to the list of complaints that have been filed against timothy the parents of two of the missing girls in northern california amber garcia and michaela garrett who also are still missing to this day well, they claim that Timothy had been contacting them in regard to their missing children, that he wanted to help locate them. Timothy was coming around the families completely uninvited and making it very known that he was conducting his own solo searches. This information did not sit well with either family, and they started to become confident that they felt that Timothy probably had something to do with the girls' disappearances, and he wasn't just this good Samaritan that he claimed to be. So along with his job at a sewer treatment plant, Timothy always found ways to volunteer his time, creepily, at a cemetery. Mm -hmm. He would volunteer his time repairing headstones. Seems like a nice gesture if we didn't just, you know, tell you guys everything else that we know about him. All the other horrible things about Timothy. So to us and to many, it just seems like it was an excuse for him to be in that area. Timothy was known to frequent a gravesite of a young girl who had passed away. Her name was Angela Bugry, and she was murdered by her parents in 1983. Now, he didn't just go to this gravesite once or twice. He was seen there under surveillance more than 80 times. Timothy was a stranger to this little girl and to her family, yet he was always seen sitting at her gravesite as if he knew her. Timothy had enjoyed spending time with Angela, he said, and he loved being able to talk to her. Timothy was sick. Sick is like an understatement. I know. That's why I have it in bold here. (laughs) (laughs) He was also seen... Ew. Sorry. It's just really hard for me. So, he was also seen kissing her headstone and simulating sex acts at her grave. Ugh. Ugh. I can't. So Timothy was interviewed by a forensic psychiatrist who he told he was in love with Angela. After all of his creepy actions, it led police to naming Timothy as a suspect in the disappearance of Amanda Nikki Campbell, who went missing December 1991, and again, Amber Garcia, who went missing in 1988. So the FBI was staked out at the cemetery watching Timothy at Angela's gravesite. They were the ones reporting all of the creepy actions that had been going on there. They decided that they were going to bring in search dogs to comb the area. Those dogs ended up picking up the scent of both of the missing girls at Angela's gravesite. Timothy was no doubt a strange dude, and you would think that he would do anything he could to stay out of the spotlight. But he did everything to bring himself into the spotlight. Timothy called up a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News and requested that she interview him. 
Journalist Linda Golston agrees to meet Timothy at his request at the Oakmont Cemetery at 4.30 in the morning. What? Yeah. And okay. The meeting, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> and the meeting place specifically was Angela's gravesite. During the interview with Timothy, Linda would come back to report strange behaviors by Timothy. Surprise, surprise. He was obsessing about all of the missing girls in the area. Timothy even offered Linda a theory on what he thought happened when the girls were taken down to saying one of the girls fought her captor while the other one was much more submissive. He quickly tells Linda that those are just his theories on the abductions. Oh, just just theories, Timothy? Yeah, and that he had nothing to do with them. So Timothy once again inserts him into the abductions of the missing girls by writing a letter to the police department detailing that the next girl that he thought would go missing would be the age of nine. Coincidentally, in November of 1988, Michaela Garrett, nine years old, goes missing. In December of 1991, four-year-old Amanda Nikki Campbell went missing. Shortly before her abduction, Timothy had sent a Christmas card to an FBI profiler with a photo on the front of the card of a little girl holding up four fingers. To say that Timothy's actions were oddly suspicious is A, an understatement, and B, didn't end there. He once openly theorized that all of the missing girls in the area were buried in open graves at the Oakmont Cemetery, the one that he was known to have access to and spend so much of his time at. So in 1992, Timothy's house is searched, but again, they find no connections between him or any of the missing girls. Now, to add the weirdness that surrounds this Timothy character, he sat on a jury in 2009 for a man that was convicted of killing his son. The defense attorneys for the man claimed that Timothy misrepresented himself to gain a spot on the jury panel. So prosecutors on the case argued that the conviction should stand because Timothy was open about his prior status of being a person of interest in abduction cases. A juror claimed that while he was serving on the panel with Timothy, they had been discussing the case and that Timothy went on this long rant about how to choke somebody to death and how long you have to hold the choke for it to be effective. Timothy claimed that he only knew this from experience of, you know, choking himself. What the f- (laughs) Okay, Timothy. So, through the years and among the strange actions and behaviors and comments made by Timothy, he has never been charged or physically linked to any of these missing girls. Now, he's always maintained his innocence, saying that he never hurt any of the girls, he didn't even know them, saying that he was deeply affected when he heard about their disappearances, and he wanted to do anything he could to help. Stay away. Yeah, stay far away. So, annual walks take place to this day in Dublin. And Eileen's friends and families and supporters, they come out to walk the mile and a half route that Eileen would have walked from school to her home on January 30th, 1989. Their main focus has been to keep Eileen's story in the media and to keep her memory alive. Law enforcement is still very actively publicly working on this case today. They have said that they do believe that Eileen was met with foul play, but this is not a closed case by any means and that it won't be until she is brought home. Eileen would have turned 45 this year, and both of her parents are now in their 70s. They are still more hopeful than ever that Eileen will return home to them one day, just like J.C. Duggard returned home to her family after many years of being held captive. And they always make sure to speak of Eileen in the present tense. Mm-hmm. A $100,000 reward is still being offered to anyone who has any information on the whereabouts of Eileen. Any tip that can lead the investigators to a suspect. 
If you or someone knew or saw something that January 30th, heard something, like please report it to the tip line and you can remain completely anonymous. There were a lot of kids out walking that afternoon and maybe you saw something that sticks out in your mind and you didn't think about it because you were eight, nine, or 10 years old, but it might make a difference now. If you remember something, report it. Let the police determine if that tip is useful or not. You can reach the Dublin Police Sergeant Daniel McNaughton at 925-833-6673. Thank you all for joining us for a new episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. If you can please head over to wherever you're listening now and leave us a five-star review, we'd appreciate it. Please hop on social media and share today's post. It contains all of Eileen's photos and a description of what she was wearing when she was last seen. We and her family have the hopes that these photos and her story will grab the attention of somebody who has information about that day. Please help us keep her story alive in hopes that she will return to her family one day. Thanks again, you guys. We look forward to seeing you back here next Friday at our usual time. Everyone have a very safe weekend, and we'll see you then. Bye, Bye guys. guys.